0: Hello and welcome to What the Fintech, the podcast from the team behind Fintech Futures and the Banking Technology magazine. I'm Alex Hamilton, Deputy Editor at Fintech Futures, and joining me for this episode is Annery Vrogdenhill, Chief Innovation Officer at ING and also Head of ING Neo. Welcome to the show, Annery.
1: Thank you, uh, Alex, and I'm very glad to be here.
0: It's fantastic to have you on. As those listening from Annarie's title, you may have guessed already the topic of this show in particular is all about innovation uh, and its place at the heart of the banking industry. We'll be talking uh, consolidation, dissemination, integration, collaboration, uh, and many more Asians later in the show, um, as well as more about Annarie and about ING Neo. But first, as always, is our news in numbers. Uh, This is where we both gone out and found some news stories, topics or, or trends with an interesting number in it to chat about. Um, Annie is our guest, and it's traditional our guest goes first. Uh, so, Annie, what number has has caught your eye, or would you like to talk about for this session?
1: Well, I saw an article on embedded finance, and there was a number of forty percent in there, which was forty percent of people who had missed a payment on a buy now pay later solution didn't realise that it would affect their credit score.
0: Mm. Ah well, yeah, that's a uh, that's a big one. I think um,
1: it's tough. Sometimes it's tough in this industry
0: not to talk about BNPL and its uh, and its effects on spending habits. But forty percent is a hefty one. Um, I, I know that I've I've used BNPL on a few purchases um, previously. My fiance doesn't listen to this, so I can say I used it for an engagement ring. Um, but uh, what about yourself, Andrew? Have you ever used uh, used BNPL uh, payments?
1: No, actually, I didn't. So I think this is also something that is very culturally. So in the Netherlands, I grew up and many with me, you save first and then you spend the money, right? So buy now, pay later is something that's a bit alien to us. I think it's there. I mean, there's definitely things, but I I personally don't like it. So the first thing I do when I have a new credit card is make sure that it simply collects all the things I owe them at the end of the month Mm -hmm. rather than spreading it out. Um, So I don't like it very much myself also because... It doesn't give me the real feeling of control of my spending. And I think that is really the topic around BNPL as far as I'm concerned. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I
0: mean, I think there's always something very um, psychological about the idea of seeing an ability to spread payments over a long period of time. Even for those who I want to assure in case my fiance does listen to this podcast or anyone now is going to go and at me or find her on Twitter and tell her um, that, you know, if you're someone who has the money in their account anyway... Um, then I guess you know if you're someone who understands debt uh, agreements and installment-based payments, and you have the money in your account anyway, then that's sort of it's fine. It's more of a, I guess a, a neat feature when you know that you know well. Why not? I could spend the let's say a um, hundred pounds on a jacket or something. I could spend a hundred pounds because I have the money. But what well, I could also just spend thirty-three pounds over three months, and you know that's just as well. But it's when people have only thirty-three pounds in their account and they they think well. In that case it's basically uh, two-thirds off for this month and i think yeah i think the problem is an early problem with bnpl and i think it's got a little bit better now is that education piece about you know this will affect your credit score um people will we will contact debt organizations if you don't pay up and there have been issues in the us as well about you know the fact that people are going into overdrafts and banks in the U.S. in particular aren't very keen on people going into overdrafts. So, I think that there's a big education piece around it, um, especially for people perhaps in, like you mentioned, in the Netherlands who don't really come across that kind of spending trend.
1: Well, they can eh? but I think what intrigues me about this is there's a clear need for this, eh? and I honestly think it's maybe not even for m- for people who have the money in the account. I mean, there's people who have the money in the account and they still spread their payments on a credit and actually I think the whole why now pay later trend is for a very large part also replacing credit card for this purpose, right? Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, if you think of it from a consumer perspective, so if you are in a electronics shop and you want to buy a new TV and you see a new TV which is just a little bit over your budget, uh, but you really like it and you think this is the one, you're not going back home and going log in on your bank account go for a consumer credit facility, wait a couple of weeks until it's there. You know, you want to buy the television right at that moment. And I think this customer experience is really what you can call it, is what attracts so many people to it. And obviously there's people who use it like they've used credit cards to maximize all the money they can get from somewhere because they don't have enough. But I'm not even sure that that happens all the time. And I think there's a couple of elements to that from a banking perspective, I would say. The first one is, as it's an industry, we really should have understood that we that consumer credit should have been much more easy and, and better for customers than we have presented it. So that is, I think, where we have to play a role as a bank and really have to look at how can we do this better. And on the other hand, I think it is very important that people really understand that they are getting on debt if they do this. And I saw another number somewhere else where I think only 10 or 11% of the buy now pay later companies really actually post to people you're getting debt, even though they all have to. And I think this is a little bit where the tension is in this whole thing. And for me, it's, it's really important that at least, you know, as a bank, that if we do things like this, that we really take care of our customers that we really make sure that they understand what we what they're doing that they can afford it you know i can imagine that we have clients who 10 months out of 12 have enough money for this tv but not at the moment that the world championship soccer is about to start right that's the moment where people buy tvs uh, Mm -hmm. right so and then there's nothing wrong with actually using buy now pay later and repaying it in the next couple of months where you're normally fine but that sort of judgment i think providers of this kind of service have to help people with, and at least banks really have this duty of care to people. Um, So I think there's a whole bunch of of it to say to it. And what I actually liked about the article was that it was written by a millennial. And why I liked it is because I think millennials are, are a big user group of buy now, pay later because they don't want to have a credit card. Why should they want to pay for a credit card? So they use those kind of things. But even there, there's people who are starting to say, hey, listen, we have to be a little bit careful here and we have to really make sure we do this the right way. And I was very encouraged to see that coming from that kind of, yeah, biggest user group at the moment.
0: Mm. I mean, I, we'll move on to, to my story in a second, but I just, I feel like it's a good chance to ask that, that obviously the, a lot of the buy now pay later firms make their money from the relationship they have with retailers. So therefore their relationship with their, with their users it, it could be argued is little more than the relationship between the user and the front-end service, the UI. Uh, and then beyond that, the, for them, users are just a big block of amorphous people who happen to buy things for retailers that they have partnerships with. Do you think that's a relationship that needs swapping or changing, that they should turn around and be like, well, be, obviously we're making the money off the retailers we partner with, but you know we should actually start talking to the people who are using our service?
1: I, I really think so. I think in many countries already, there's some regulation that they at least have to warn people that they're getting on debt. Um, but I really think if you get in, involved in this kind of business, you have a duty of care, whether you're called a bank or not. And I think especially with debt and the mental problems that people get from being indebted, it's a societal issue that we all should feel responsible for. And it's not something that is just UX or it's just like you are correctly saying, I think there's more of a group of people who happen to use your service. So I would really like for people to think this through and, and also take a societal perspective on this.
0: Fantastic. Well, um, from a story with some some interesting numbers in it, I'm going to be cheating, unfortunately, this week because it's kind of a number. I've graphed straws here, so we can go with one, which is in the title of the fintech we're going to be talking about, or three, the number of products it offers. But unfortunately, because the story is about a a buyout uh, and the number is undisclosed, we can't talk about that. However, I thought it was interesting. So um, Brian Barnes, who, for those unaware, is the CEO of a fintech in America called M1 Finance. Uh, they provide investment products, a lending product, and also a, a checking account and debit card. Um, now, it's interesting because instead of M1 Finance buying a small community bank in the U.S., it is in fact Brian Barnes, the CEO, who has bought a, a small community bank in the U.S., Virginia-based, first national bank of Buell. It's an interesting one because M1 Finance has its own F- FDIC partnership with Lincoln Savings Bank, and by Barnes's own admission, First National Bank of Beyond is one of the smallest chartered banks in the U.S. But what he plans to do with it is to focus on helping it serve its local community, of, of course. But then going forward to invest in the technology it provides and turn it into a banking as a service provider. Um, and of course, the first customer of that as a service service will be M1 Finance itself. So uh, he said, purchasing this bank provides M1 with another partner bank for its next banking product launch. While the companies are wholly separate, they intend to forge a partnership to change the future of finance. Um, I just found that an interesting one, because if you're looking to create a, a banking as a service platform, or indeed to create, get a better grip on the market, it's interesting to choose a small bank in the Virginian countryside to take up as your baseline to be moving with. And I think it's also interesting, Henry, when you think about, usually people start to talk about banks buying fintechs these days, but in this case, it's a fintech that's bought a bank. Um. So there's a lot of interesting things in that, but I, I mean, it's uh, it's an interesting concept to try and take a small bank and turn it into a banking as a service provider. But what are your thoughts on it?
1: It's really interesting. And I, I do think, though, that which, it's a little bit of a trend as well, that you see, software providers actually also getting more and more into this banking space and getting payment licenses, lending licenses, and sometimes even getting banking licenses. So whether you do that through acquiring one or getting the licenses yourself, it brings you the same. I think what I think where it can really add value is for the software company to really have a a place where it can test its software and can uh, really make it enterprise-grade, make sure it's banking-grade, etc. So I can see it from that perspective. I think it is worthwhile from that perspective. But on the other hand, you also have a bank at your hands. And you have a responsibility to the community, which he seems to be well aware of. But you have a bank at your hands. And it a bank is not a simple company to just manage on the side right it's a very complex uh, animal which you really have to spend a lot of time on so i'm curious to see how he plans to combine the two basically but maybe he has a very good team at m1
0: yeah no i, I completely agree it's um i just find it ex- an interesting one as like you mentioned that it has the feel on the surface level and when you dive deeper you can understand the reasoning but the sort of the whole idea of oh, i'll just i'll buy a bank and it'll be the side project for my my software firm and it's sort of it's something that um you know, if you go back even 10 years or so, you know, something like that would be if you said, oh, I'm going to buy a bank and I own a, you know, I own a, a payments company. People would be like, what? How? You know, it's, it's something that people never really thought was going to be a thing. Why are you that bothered about buying a bank when you can make technology instead? But it's yes, yeah, it shows the way the industry is is turning now.
1: Exactly. Uh, Ten years ago, I would have said, well, know what you wish for. <laughs> but, uh... <laughs> But yeah it's, i think it's a trend that is happening a little bit more broadly and it's interesting to see how that evolves whether people will actually shy away from it at some some stage. And so i think what is a very interesting example in this area is actually end financial and leave alone where they now are with the regulator but a couple of years they basically created core banking software and actually they did that super well so they were able to replace that core banking software every couple of years with the latest technology which is amazing you know we incumbents we struggle with legacy all over the place especially in core banking Um, But then they found out that if they want to use it as a bank, that they were going to be subject to all the regulation. And they said, well, that's not really what we aim for. So they actually started to sell it as a service to all kinds of smaller banks in Southeast Asia who don't have the capital to invest in their own new core banking systems. And that made them a great business. So it's definitely a trend where people are trying to figure out where is the balance, how much of the burden of a banking license should I have, or what can I actually do without it?
0: Here we are in part two of the podcast. This is our more interview styled section where we focus the discussion down into a specific industry topic or sector. As mentioned at the top, we're going to be talking about innovation. Uh, we'll dive into it in just a moment. But first, I'm going to give Annery a chance to talk about ING in case you've not heard of it. Well, I'd be, I'd be wondering why you're listening to this podcast if you hadn't heard of ING. Uh, ING, ING Neo and her role at the bank. So uh, take it away, Annery.
1: Yeah, thanks very much, Alex. Um, well, actually, ING NEO is, I think, one of the most exciting things that I'm, I have ever been working on. So it's really the next step in our innovation journey. So w- what we did at the start of this year is that we merged the three um, innovation departments that we had into one real business area, which is ING NEO, and that's what makes it so exciting. So a business area means that I actually have a PL, and l so we are set up for generating revenues as well. And... Obviously that is a a very interesting moment. If you create startups, they have to start getting revenues and contributing to the revenue line of the bank, um, which is really where we are now at ING with innovation. And we have also with the formation of Neo, really looked at what have we learned in the past couple of years. We've been at innovation uh, in ING, I think for five, six, seven years. We've learned a lot, what works, what doesn't work for us. And we've come to, I think, quite clear vision of where we want to innovate. So we said, we have to look at areas where disruption is happening. ING has a right to play and the disruption is big enough to really make an impactful business. So we selected five value spaces, um, housing being one. So obviously mortgages is a part of that, but it's not called mortgages for a reason. We want to go much broader into the customer journey. The customer doesn't want a mortgage. The customer wants a house. Mm-hmm. So it's it's really the broad scope of servicing our clients with their housing journey. Another one is trade. We are the biggest bank in trade and commodity finance. Again, it's trade and not just trade and commodity finance, but it gives us the right to play in this in this sector. So that's what we concentrate on. Then we have a couple of things which are a bit closer to home, maybe. So we have disrupt lending. Obviously, well, we already talked about buy now, pay later, but a lot of things are happening in the lending space across consumers, small businesses, bigger businesses, they're very large businesses. So that's a space where we um, want to innovate a lot in and we do a lot in. We have uh, financial health, which is also, again, a bit closer to home. We really feel that we have to help our clients being financially healthy. And the last one is even closer to home maybe, but also for our clients, an increasing topic is to be saving compliant. So we very much focus our efforts right now and we basically make sure that we, really look at what is the big problem to solve and once we found that we look at is somebody in the world already doing it then let's see if we can partner Um, if we can partner maybe we want to invest and if we cannot find anybody we will build it ourselves and create a business out of it which will give us the revenues that we're aiming for at neo so it's really the next step in our journey way more focused way more concentrated uh, but really making the impact now
0: yeah, that's uh, that's really interesting, and especially because ING has a history of creating teams which become projects, which become their own sort of creature within the ING structure, and then even in some cases like Yolt, spinning it, spinning it out. So, how does consolidating innovation within one department or one area of the bank, perhaps, instead of department, um, how does that help a bank or or a financial institution grow uh, and develop, as opposed to sort of having separate silos of teams working all over the place?
1: It very much depends on what kind of things you want to do with innovation so we have divided our innovation efforts like many people have it in three horizons where horizon one is largely incremental change and horizon two is really new products and services largely adjacent and horizon three is really the groundbreaking new stuff and the mandate for neo is global horizon two so new products and services and horizon three So the incremental things or the things for just a country or just one product line will be done by the business itself. So that will definitely still be spread over the bank and use all the resources of the bank. But the things where there's more risk and more uncertainty at the start, so a completely new product for clients, will they actually like it? Will they use it? Um, How do you do it? That's what we do in in Neo.
0: Excellent. And when it comes to, uh, in in terms of, of that sort of idea of innovation being, siloed i mean there's probably a lot of banks out there maybe there's a few listening right now who think you know we have we've got innovation teams who are working on new projects we're looking to partner with startups we're looking to create our own ideas but at some point they hit like a, a break wall where it's like well these guys have all really good ideas but they're not getting through to the other parts of the organization either the sea level the guy at the top in the tie Or even the tech guys who work on the core banking system and and all the central infrastructure who just say, oh, this is scary and confusing. It might break what we've been working on for 30 years. So how do you disseminate that innovative ideas and innovative culture throughout an organization?
1: Well, you know, you completely hit the hundred million dollar question on the nail, right? So (laughs) this is definitely the biggest challenge that we have as an innovation department. And. Um, I always call it the immune system of the bank. eh? So everything is coming up the moment you want to hit the bank with an innovation. You know, it's not invented here. You don't get fired for hiring IBM. I have other priorities. It will blow up my relationship with clients. It risks my own business. You know, there's many, many, many reasons why people will resist it. And I think we're getting better at that also by creating focus. So one of the things I think we have not been super smart in is that we have been hitting a certain part of the business with way too many things, which they couldn't absorb. So we really Mm -hmm. have to find the right balance of where is a certain business? Do they have room to absorb innovations? Or do they, for instance, have a lot of regulatory stuff to work on? Or do they have a lot of um, core maintenance stuff to work on? Then, well, you know, don't go there. It's not the right moment, probably. Um, But there's more and more parts of the bank that are really opening up and saying listen we really need this we need you to innovate for me because we need new revenues in the end a business a bank is a business that has a lot of headwinds on its core of its business especially in europe with the negative interest rates it's really hard to still get to the same kind of revenue levels as we were used for too so we really have to make sure that we find new ways to actually Create business models, and I think more and more people in the bank realize that and start looking at Ingenio to come up with things.
0: Sure, and from like the probably swapping to the other side of things, we were talking about the dichotomy of it's usually banks in integrating and investing in startups and bringing them into the ecosystem instead of the other way around. But in that case, one of the big problems for banks in recent years, maybe they're getting better at it. You can tell me, but is the the hiring of the right talent and getting the right people in from either from graduates or even from startups that they are acquiring or partnering with or working with. So how can banks sort of make sure that if they do in in a bank fintech futures acquires a, a startup firm, brings them in, and how do they make sure there's not a huge culture shock that uh, these startup guys come in from, you know, quite a free-flowing kind of way of doing things to being in a monolithic structure uh, and then suddenly having to deal with all the processes and for want of a better word, the red tape and bureaucracy that can happen within a financial institution?
1: Well, that is one of the reasons why we keep a lot of those innovations, whether we build them ourselves or partner it, under ING Neo, rather than completely submerge them in the bank, because then indeed there's a big culture shock. Um, so we can help them, guide them through doing a proof of concept. Uh, what does it actually mean? What does a bank require? And I think this is Something where a lot of fintechs are going up the learning curve, but we, we still come across people who don't know what enterprise grade means. They don't know what kind of security we need before they, we can let them be exposed to our clients and our client data. So it's really a place where we have to guide them. Um, and you should keep it a little bit separately because indeed, if you make them bankers, you know, there will be no match. The, the cultural differences are simply too big, and um, which is where, you know, why we are, a separate business line, we are not in the core of the bank, we're a little bit aside and we can help bridge those two worlds.
0: Sure and there's always that um, that conversation around what it used to be fintech versus bank and now it's turned into fintech and bank versus big tech in some cases or just sort of there. there's a, a point where at the school dance fintech and bank are sort of looking at each other across the room and they want to partner up and there's a future there but There are some, you know, a few roadblocks in the way, and especially now you have new startups uh, reaching, I mean, in some cases, almost stratospheric valuations and having huge funding rounds before perhaps they could even get to the point where a bank might think about partnering or even integrating them. So how do you see the future of collaboration between the two sides of what are essentially two sides of the same coin?
1: yeah i think indeed there's more and more collaboration but both sides are learning so on the one hand part of the money that they get they have to spend on becoming enterprise great and actually that is a lengthy journey it it takes a year one and a half year easily to actually have all your security in in place have have your licenses etc which will make a bank more comfortable to do business with you so part of the funding is definitely needed for that step that people have to make and i think there's a couple of elements to it. You also see that banks have learned that there's quite a bit of stuff we can do ourselves as well. And that even though we may be slower, which we are, but we also have a huge client base. So the moment, you know, we can be two years slower because if we then push our whole client base behind it, we actually will still have an advantage over a FinTech that may be way faster in building a product, but will have a real hard time actually scaling it and getting all the customers on it. So I think we are both learning more and more to see where we really have value and where not, and where it is better to do it ourselves or where we want the speed of working with somebody else. And I think this whole relationship gets more and more mature between parties.
0: In part three for the fintech jail, everybody's favourite. Um, this is where we ask for an industry term, buzzword, trend, company, uh, CEO, no one's been that brave yet, uh, to put into our, our fintech jail, or if it's already in there, whether uh, it deserves an extended sentence or uh, for their case to be dismissed, as we've had in a few recent episodes. So, Annary, uh, what, what buzzword or trendy topic do you wish was locked away in a, in our fintech prison?
1: actually we already touched upon it a little bit but my word that really should be in the jail is funding because i think the market is way too hot so this is starting to be a thing in itself rather than thing that has value underneath it
0: yeah that's an interesting one we we had um in a few episodes ago we had a very similar one which was talking about the the terms like pre-seed and seed and the fact that everyone and everyone anyone is trying to push out as many press releases as possible about the the the, the tiniest or even the largest amounts of funding but yeah i mean it really has recently become a it, it seems like there's a new massive funding round every week these days with new fintechs and i mean at fintech futures we, we produce a, and in case you missed it where we we list funding rounds under roughly about 15 million dollars and every week there's at least ten or eleven of them that are happening all around the world. It's a bit becoming a bit of an avalanche. What's your beef, so to speak, with the term funding?
1: I must say that I sometimes really struggle to understand the value that is put on certain fintechs. So, you know, to give a couple of examples, if you take the three biggest buy now pay later firms, they have together the same market cap as Goldman Sachs. Mm. Really? Um, So the recent funding round for N26, what are they going to spend this money on? At the moment, they especially have to fix the issues they have with the regulator. And also from experience, I can say that if you're flooded with funding, super nice, but what it does is that it also uh, makes it, you don't have to focus as much as you had to before. So you can wander off in all kinds of side paths that may not actually make your company any stronger. So there is really um, a lot to say for bootstrapping and keeping them on a short leash and really make sure they focus and get the stuff ready and right first before they branch out to all kind of other stuff. So sometimes I'm really honestly concerned when there's very good companies with good ideas and good products and they get flooded with funding, whether they can actually deal with it.
0: Mm, yeah, I, th- I think there there is very much a case that things can happen too much too fast. and. I don't want to misquote myself, but I think n twenty six now has a market cap of roughly the size of Commerce Bank or that's what people are saying, which is mad when you compare profit levels, which obviously Commerce Bank absolutely dwarfs n twenty six and its profits and the actual its ability to well continue trading
1: exactly. and it's it's also, you know, I don't want to say immediately draw an analogy for n twenty six, but, I remember the moment where Wirecard actually pushed Commerce Bank out of the docks. Mm. And look at what happened to them a year later, right? They completely imploded. So there's risks to those fast-growing companies. And the more they're flooded with money, uh, the more they can grow super fast without maybe getting their organization in check. You know, it sounds great, but you have to build your organization to match it. You have to create structures to actually match your new size and your new activities. And there's very few companies who really succeed in doing that simultaneously. So I'm actually, for some really great companies, worried when they get so much money.
0: Mm. Well, I think you've not only have you explained it extremely well, but you've also hit upon a bugbear that I'm sure if there are any journalists listening or even editorial staff of Fintech Futures, uh, the sheer amount of uh, press releases we get in our inboxes every day about every single piece of funding, I'm sure already uh, twinging at people's, making people's eyes twitch uh, the idea. So I think you're going to have support from not only those who view the industry from a risk perspective, but also those who have to report on it. So let no one call me biased, because I absolutely am. But um, I think no, I think for funding in that terms, and someone might look at it later and want it dismissed, but I think in the way that we've talked about it here and in the, the inherent risk of creating, you know, heaven forbid we say the word bubble, but creating you know, this kind of uh, situation in the market. I think for that reason, yeah,
1: funding can go in the FinTech jail. And I'm sure there will be people who will take it out immediately, but it's okay. <laughs> it's, it's a good discussion to have, right?
0: Yeah, well, I look forward to talking to someone who wishes for it to be removed. Uh, Well, that's all we have time for for this episode. Thanks to Andrew for joining me. Before we sign off, is there anything you just want to quickly say to our audience listening right now about either ING, ING Neo or anything you've seen in the market that interests you?
1: Yeah, well, maybe I can give a bit of advice to people who are listening to this, right? So um, I think... One of the biggest things we've learned is that it makes a lot of sense to first go for a big problem to solve rather than immediately go for a solution. And then it's hard work and it requires a lot of stamina and a lot of learnings you will fail often, but the moment that you succeed is actually awesome. So I wish everybody a great journey on innovation. We are still working on it every day, learning every day. We make mistakes every day, but we also have our successes um, and that's what's making it so exciting.
0: Fantastic. Excellent wise words to finish off the show. And uh, if you're looking to find me on Twitter and talk to me about how how could I have put funding in the fintech jail, uh, you can find me on at ADHamilton91 and on LinkedIn uh, just by searching for my name, Alexander Hamilton, uh, just like the musical. And for Fintech Futures, you can find us online at www.fintechfutures.com, on Twitter at, at Fintech Futures and on LinkedIn just by searching Fintech Futures and looking for our logo with two Fs. Also, please feel free to check out the Banking Technology magazine has just launched the November issue, so please check that out. We also have a new report on financial inclusion as we move towards a post-COVID future that's available to download right now as well. And as always, if you liked this episode of What The Fintech and our podcast in general, then please feel free to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, or your favorite third-party podcasting service of choice. And as usual, we really appreciate it if you could help other listeners find the podcast by writing a review or recommending us to a friend. Thanks very much for all support. Uh, We'll see you soon for another episode of What The Fintech. But until then, goodbye.